Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We're returning to Matthew's gospel this morning. Back to a familiar territory. We've been, over the Christmas holidays, we've been here, there, and everywhere, but we're back now to Matthew's gospel, and I'm excited to pick it back up again. We are in Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 23 to 33 this morning. You know, one of the bedrock beliefs of the people of God is that uh, this life does not end with death. That death is not all there is. That living in this sin-saturated world and then ending in death and passing into oblivion is not the future. It's not the future. It's not all there is. There's an age to come. There is an age to come. And in the age to come, God will punish the wicked. They will not succeed. He will punish the wicked. And in the age to come, He will reward the righteous, those who have longed for him, those who have been drawn to him in faith, those who live in obedience to his word. There is an age to come. And the reality of the age to come necessitates the doctrine of the resurrection. The bodily resurrection. That these bodies laid to rest in the ground someday will rise again. And we will enter the age to come. Body and soul. The people of God have always believed this. They have always believed it. And they have always longed for that day, the resurrection. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of mystery that surrounds this reality. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of questions that we can ask about it. And through the years, people have asked me all kinds of questions about the resurrection, and the age to come. Things like, for example, when people rise from the dead, will they have clothes? Will they have clothes on? In the resurrection, what about if you had an artificial limb? What happened? Will we carry bodily defects into the life to come? How will we recognize one another? I mean, if, we, if, if, if all of our bodily defects are eliminated in the resurrection, how will we recognize each other? What about age? When someone dies as a 
an infant or child? Will they remain an infant and a child throughout all eternity in the, in the age to come? What about someone who dies old? Will they be old forever in the age to come? How does God uh, regather the atoms of a person's body? Particularly someone who perhaps died in some sort of industrial accident or something. These are just a few questions. Just a few questions that, that, that people ask regarding the resurrection. And... Um, Some ask these questions in a humble sincerity. Others ask these kinds of questions as a way to scoff at the truth of the resurrection. As a way to ridicule the resurrection. Now people who who ask questions humbly and sincerely are deserving of an answer. Frequently, the answer is, I don't know. I, I don't know. Good, interesting question. I don't know. But when people ask questions about the resurrection as a way to mock it, as a way to ridicule it, as a, as a way to, to make light of it, or to somehow communicate that it's not true, it's not real, then they enter into what the Bible calls the life of the fool. They become a fool. And the Bible instructs us how to deal with fools. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. In other words, when you're dealing with a fool, when you're dealing with a scoffer, and the fool says in their heart there is no God, right? When you're dealing with the fool, we are are not to, to entertain their line of thinking. We're not to enter into their argumentation. If the questions about the resurrection are designed to humiliate the resurrection, designed to to disprove the resurrection, they're not questions to be entertained. Not according to that foolish logic. Instead, we're to answer them as they deserve, which is we are to rebuke their foolish thinking. To rebuke it. Now, the text we have before us this morning here in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23 and following, Jesus is going to deal with a fool. Actually, he's going to deal with a whole pack of fools. A whole pack of fools. People who say in their heart, there is no God. Beloved, mark this down and, and, and walk away with this. Truth begins... By believing this fundamental, simple statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is where all truth begins. A denial of that 
is to launch oneself on the path of foolishness. This is a source of all truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're here in uh, chapter 22. We're in, in verse uh, 23, and uh, probably appropriate to maybe set a little bit of context, particularly since it's been a month or so since we've looked at Matthew's gospel together. We're located from a time point of view here in the Passion Week. This is the final week of Jesus' earthly life. We are in particular on Tuesday of the Passion Week, perhaps midday on Tuesday. Particular events recorded here for us in verse 23. But Jesus is in possession of the temple, we're told in Mark chapter 11 and verse 16. All of Monday and all of Tuesday, Jesus has possessed the temple. That is, that he, he will not permit anyone, we're told in Mark's gospel, to, to, um, to carry goods through the temple. He won't allow people to use the temple as a shortcut. The king is in his temple, and he is in control of his temple. Now, the, the earthly leaders and rulers of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, or what we know as the Sadducees, they are not happy about this. The temple is their domain, and so they are challenging Jesus' authority. There's a a debate going on, there's a dispute going on, and it's about authority. How can you have authority over the temple to, to upset all of the money changers and the sacrifice sellers and to prevent people from using it as a shortcut and so forth? Who are you to exert such authority over the temple when the temple belongs to us? So they challenge Jesus' authority on the temple. And he responds to them and addresses them in a series of Three parables. It begins back in chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 28, where he he tells them the parable of the two sons. You remember that. One says he'll do it and doesn't do the father's will. The other says he won't and then ultimately does. He then uh, proceeds to tell them the parable, beginning in verse uh, 33 of Matthew 21, the parable of the landowner or the parable of the vine growers, right? Those are the ones who who say they are going to kill the son and seize the vineyard for themselves, the inheritance for themselves. And Jesus says, you are those ones. They recognize that reality that he is speaking the parable against them. And then he tells the parable in verse 22, beginning in verse 1, of the marriage feast. The parable of the marriage feast. So he tells these three parables in response to the, to the challenge of his authority. The Sadducees at that point withdraw. They have, been, they have been bested, they have been humiliated, they withdraw. And uh, like a tag team wrestling match, the Pharisees now enter into the picture. And beginning in verse 15 of chapter 22. And they now uh, seek to trap Jesus over the question of paying taxes. The question of taxes, right? Do we, do we pay the tax to Caesar or not? And they are trying to draw him into a, into a conflict here over the payment of taxes. Jesus skillfully turns that back on them. And then we arrive, the Pharisees withdraw, and we arrive here at the text this morning in verse 23. And again, like, you know, tag, Pharisees withdraw, Sadducees come back in. So the Sadducees now come back at him, beginning here in verse 23. 
And they now approach him and seek to trap him over the question of the resurrection. They seek to trap him about the resurrection. So a few things to just you know, kind of historical facts. For some of you, this is sort of a familiar territory. For others, you perhaps knew, but let's just kind of go through it, make sure you understand what's going on here. But, but the Sadducees, these are the ones who control the temple in Jerusalem. This is the priesthood of the nation of Israel. And they were unbelieving materialists. They were unbelieving materialists. That is, they denied the afterlife. They believed that life ended at the grave. There was nothing beyond the grave. They were materialists. They denied the invisible spirit world. The world consisted for them of what one could see, taste, smell, touch. They were materialists. Beyond that, they taught that that only the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, were the Word of God, were Scripture. They thought all the rest of the Old Testament was not Scripture. Now, they really didn't believe that that, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy was was truly the Word of God either. But, But publicly, that's what they would say, is that the Word of God was only Genesis through Deuteronomy. Why? Not sure, but my suspicion is is because it's there that they would find the necessary text to support their priesthood and their authority over the whole temple operation would be found in those five books. But in any case, they denied anything beyond Deuteronomy to be the Word of God. That's one group, the Sadducees. The second major leadership group in the nation were the, were the Pharisees. The Pharisees controlled the synagogue system. The synagogue system. This would be the way the, that the rank-and-file people would encounter God. This was the, this was the basis of the, of the religion of Israel of that day. It was rooted in Pharisaical Judaism in the synagogue system. The Pharisees were the popular teachers among the people. They control the religious life of the land. The Sadducees and the Pharisees despised each other. They hated each other. They were together in the Sanhedrin, the the 70, the leading rule, the rulership council of the nation, but they despised each other. Absolutely despised each other. The only thing the Pharisees hated more than the Sadducees was Jesus. And the only thing the Sadducees hated more than the Pharisees was Jesus. And so here, in this, in, during this Passion Week, you've got to keep this in your mind, these mortal enemies make an unholy alliance with one another for the purpose of destroying Jesus so that they can go back to fighting and feuding as they have been and to ruling the nation of Israel. They're going to get rid of this troublesome preacher. They often engaged in heated debate with each other. I won't turn you there, but you can mark this down. Check it out yourself. Acts chapter 23, for example, verses 6 through 10 is a perfect illustration of the smoldering uh, dispute uh, that lies under the surface of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it doesn't take but a spark to set it off. They hate each other. Now, Since this is a long-term dislike and hatred of one another and frequent debate, 
uh, over time, one hones their arguments, right? If you're going to be debating someone, uh, you, you learn their, their best arguments and you begin to design your counter-arguments. And that's exactly what has happened here. Each side has their go-to arguments to try to stump the other person in theological debate. A way to discredit your, your opponent. For the Sadducees, one of their, one of their go-to arguments was a riddle. It was a riddle. And it, was a, and it was a riddle that they had designed that the purpose was to make the doctrine of the resurrection look foolish because the Pharisees believed in and taught the resurrection of the dead and the, the existence of the spirit world. And so the Sadducees developed this riddle, and by this riddle, they would, you know, whenever they got into this uh, debate with the Pharisees, they would kind of pull out the trump card, and it would be the riddle. And they'd lay the riddle on them. And then the Pharisees would, you know, sort of stammer and, you know, call them names or whatever. And, and uh, that's how it would end, with the riddle. So, here we are. The Pharisees, or the, excuse me, the Sadducees in this section are going to seek to destroy Jesus, to seek to discredit Jesus. And they're going to do it with the riddle. They're going to lay the riddle on him. The resurrection riddle. They're hoping to trap him. They're hoping to discredit him. They're hoping to undermine his popularity among the people so they might destroy him. Okay. So with all of that in the back, let's take a look at the text together. But as we do that, I, I want to just look at it with a very simple, simple outline. Okay? It's a two-point outline. I want to look at the riddle, and I want to look at the response. Okay, I'll just look with you at the riddle and the response. And in this, uh, I, I think we just must marvel at Jesus. We must marvel at Jesus in the, in the way that he, he cuts straight through the riddle. He cuts straight through the riddle. I mean, on that, beloved, there is something here to emulate. There is something here to, to emulate. That is, that is, Jesus cuts through the riddle because he is steeped in the Word of God. He is steeped in the Word of God. And using that two-edged sword, he slices through the Gordian knot, the Sadducean riddle. All right, so let's take a look at the riddle together. Verse 23. On that day, same day, right? Tuesday. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. This is a reference, uh, this Moses says, right? This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25, you can mark it down, check it on your own time. Deuteronomy 25 and verses 5 through 10. This section of Deuteronomy includes the Mosaic regulations for a number of things, but in particular in this section, and what they're referring to is the practice known as a leverate marriage. 
Let me spell that word for you. It's L-E-V, as in Victor, I-R-A-T-E. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leverate marriage. comes from the Latin. And what it, what it refers to is marriage to your brother-in-law. Marriage to your brother-in-law. Now, Israel was an agrarian nation. They were not an industrialized nation. They were an agrarian nation. That is, they were a, a pastoral nation. They were a nation that, that made its living, its existence, depended upon agricultural and pastoral activities, raising livestock and such. And what that means is that land and water rights are essential to the survival of the nation. So they are an agrarian people. They were also a tribal people, right? There were 12 sons of Jacob, and they are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they were a tribal people. Beyond that, they were a clan-based society. And this is very common among agricultural, uh, tribal, you get into a clan-based society. Clan-based. What that means is is that family lines are exceedingly important. Exceedingly important. Land inheritance becomes critical. Becomes absolutely critical. And because of this... The Mosaic Code provided this this concept of the levirate marriage. And and here's what it is, very simply. It's this, that if if a, a, uh, a man is married and dies without producing an offspring, his single brother is socially obligated to marry his widow. Not legally obligated. But there's a very, very high social pressure for him to marry his dead brother's widow. And to produce a child by that union. The firstborn child to that union would then inherit the name of the deceased brother. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 6 makes that very, very clear. What that means is that the the brother who has died, his name and his family lineage is not extinguished from Israel. This child will then inherit the, the, the land and grazing rights and so forth, the inheritance of the man who has died. Okay, he is replaced by a child born to his widow by his single brother who then who marries her. Subsequent children produced by that union, by that marriage, will inherit the, the, the inheritance of their parents. Okay? So rather than the inheritance being all pulled away and consolidated, it remains in the family line through this uh, fundamental activity called a leverate marriage. So the two inheritances are kept separate from each other. Now, normally, uh, the widow would inherit the deceased husband's property. But this, uh, which is fine, but this prevents her as well from marrying outside of the nation of Israel, outside of the clan, and and having it transferred that way. So this is designed to keep the inheritance within the clan. You remember when they enter into the land, right? It's all divided up according to the what? Tribes, and it's supposed to stay that way. 
It's not supposed to be consolidated in, in some tribes and other tribes left out. It's not to some families to grow wealthy and, and, uh, and amass great tracts of land while others are squeezed out. Okay? So it's all designed to, to keep it balanced. Now, there's not a lot of information in the Old Testament about the Leverate marriage. Actually, there's only a couple of illustrations that I can think of. And they are merely illustrations. And, and interestingly, one in Genesis 38 with uh, Tamar. Do you remember that? Uh, Tamar, she is a Judah, you know, gives his sons to her and, and get into that whole situation there. But that obviously predates the Mosaic legislation. And so Moses is, is legislating a, a custom that existed even at that time among these tribal peoples. The book of Ruth is not a perfect illustration of the Leverate uh, marriage, but it has some correspondence to it as well. Now, by the time of Jesus, here in the first century, the practice of the Leverate marriage had fallen into disuse. They had been conquered so many times. They had been displaced so many times from the land that all the original tribal allotments were all messed up anyway, and so the Leverate marriage had kind of passed into disuse. But it's there in the Mosaic law. So with that as a background, here comes the Sadducees, verse 23. They approach Jesus. Notice how they approach him. Uh, verse, excuse me, verse 24. They approach him with the title teacher. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor. Neither of which they have for him. But they come to him, teacher, because they want him to render an opinion on the Mosaic law which is what a rabbi would do. And so they're going to they're pull him into the riddle. They want to draw him into the trap. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. That's what it says, Moses, or uh, Jesus. Verse 25. Now, now, there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died. And having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Riddle. First off, it's hard to imagine seven brothers signing up to marry the black widow, right? You know what I'm saying? By the way, you know this is a riddle. I mean, it passed into disuse. The, the whole idea of seven brothers, that's a, the that's a number of completion. All right? this, thing is, this is not a real situation. This is designed as a riddle to trap him. This is the riddle that they had used on the Pharisees successfully many, many times. And they think they've got him. They think they've got him. Well, what are you going to say? What are you, you going to say? Whose wife is she? She married all seven of them? That's incest. Or are you going to just choose one and say she's the wife of number three? What about number two? What about number one? What about number seven? It just introduces an impossible series of questions. 
all designed to ridicule the notion of the resurrection from the dead and the reality of the afterlife. It's obviously a foolish, ridiculous idea, as this riddle points out. They've got him on the horns of a dilemma, right? You're the teacher. This is all designed to discredit him. You can can just imagine the crowds standing around. Right? Just like on a school ground at church, or or a school ground, not at church, hopefully, uh, the uh, school ground at school, right? When there's a fight that breaks out, right? Everybody runs to the fights, and they crowd around in a circle, They want to watch it. That's exactly what you've got to imagine going on here. Oh, this is going to be good. Right? This is going to be good. Let's see what he does with this one. And so they gather. Later on, we'll see the Pharisees are gathered. Right? They're there too. They're thinking, oh, get him. Oh, wait a minute. No, get him. Everybody's here to see what happens. So we get Jesus' response. The response, being in verse 29. Jesus' response here, really, uh, as I say, in, in keeping with the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. He, he is not going to enter into the foolish reasoning of the Sadducees. He is instead going to rebuke them. He's going to rebuke them. He's going to confront them directly with their unbelief. With their unbelief. In the process, he's going to smash their ridiculous riddle. So it begins here with his refutation, verse 29. But Jesus answered, and he said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I love this. He just goes right at him. He goes right at him. What he says to them is, is that you are blinded by your unbelief. You are blinded by your unbelief. Your denial of the afterlife has has caused you to be unable to see the truth. The truth. You're ignorant of both scripture and theology. It's like somebody saying, you know, God's all powerful. Can he he make a rock uh, so heavy that he can't lift it? That is not a question to entertain. That is a question to rebuke. Sit down and shut up. That is a stupid question. And Jesus rebukes them. He's rebuking them here. He says, you are are ignorant of the scripture. You are ignorant of theology. In particular now, with regard to theology, you're, you're wrong on two points. You're wrong on two points. First, you, you, you assume the afterlife is just like the present life. 
You extrapolate the present to the future. You say that your assumption is that the afterlife is going to be just like life is here. We see that in uh, in verse 28 where they say, uh, whose wife will she be? You're making an assumption that that the life to come is just like the life here. You're wrong. Beyond that, you do not believe in the power of God to to transform human existence. Verse 30. They will be just like the angels. In the life to come, God is going to transform human existence. It's not a mere continuation of this life. It's not just this life that goes on in perpetuity. It It is the life to come, and it is different. And it is different because of the power of God. Because of the power of God. By the way, notice here that Jesus says that uh, in the life to come they will be like the angels, not that they will become angels. Okay? So you can cringe with me the next time you're at a funeral and someone says, oh, now they're an angel. No. They're not. We'll be like angels. We will not become angels. By the way, notice verse 30 says, for in the resurrection, I need to point that out to you. In the resurrection, that is a reference to the afterlife, right? The resurrection is the entrance to the life to come. So you can just understand that as where he says in the resurrection, you can put an equal sign, in the afterlife. In the afterlife. And what Jesus says here is interesting. In the afterlife, he says, men will not marry. They neither marry, he says. In the afterlife, women will not be given in marriage. So men will not marry and women will not marry. Well, if men don't marry and women don't marry, then one could safely assume that in the afterlife there is no longer any marriage. There is no longer any marriage. That's the reality. Death ends a marriage. Death brings an end to marriage. Paul says that explicitly in Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. Jesus is saying it here. Okay? Death brings an end to marriage. It'll be faithful to you and to you alone until death do us part. Right? Until death do us part. So we are not married on into eternity. Marriage ends with death, the death of either partner. Beyond that, just kind of thinking about this a little bit more, marriage itself is is inextricably connected to having children. To having children. God said to be fruitful and multiply, right, and fill the earth. It is part of the dominion mandate. God created marriage between a man and a woman for a number of reasons. One of those fundamental reasons is that they might have children together. They might have children together. That the human race might grow and and continue and, and take dominion of the planet. It's the means by which the race continues and By the way, we are so blessed here at this church. I 
Someone told me this morning that uh, I think in the month of June, is that what you told me? Around the month of June, I think we're going to have six babies born in this congregation. That's kind of a cool month, huh? I think we've got some coming before that and some after too. So uh, nursery workers, we love you. We love you at, at so many levels. But anyway. But no marriage, let's just kind of walk with this. No marriage in the life to come means no childbearing in the life to come, which means no sexual activity in the life to come. Okay? No sexual activity in the life to come. All of that will cease in the life to come. Beyond that, the absence of marriage in the life to come implies the absence of families in the life to come. The absence of families. Because marriage is the foundational relationship of a family. When a, when a man and a woman wed, a family is, is created. Children do not create a family. Children merely enlarge a family, and then it shrinks again when they leave home. Okay? So it is a marriage that creates the fundamental building block of society called a family. So no marriage in the life to come, no marriage in heaven, if you, if you liked it that way, means no families. No families as you and I understand families. Now it's hard, isn't it? It is hard to imagine a life in which two of the things that are most familiar to us will not be there. No marriage, no families. And if you have experienced even a piece of the, of the blessing of God associated with, with a marriage and a family, then it's really hard to think about a life without those blessings. Clearly. Clearly. Well, let me say this to you. To the extent we fear losing Marriage and family in the life to come, to the extent that is, that is a fearful thing to us, reveals something about a deficiency in our theology. We do not know the power of God. We do not understand the Scriptures. To think somehow our life would be diminished by the absence of marriage and the absence of family. God has something more, something greater, something more glorious than these two most fundamental human relationships that we know here. Now that's a brain buster, I get it. But it's what the Word of God tells us. Again, don't turn there now, but you can check it out on your own. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 to 49, Paul speaks about the resurrection and the life to come. And that's his basic point, is that it's not like this life. It's something, it's something far more glorious, far more grand, far more satisfying, far more God-honoring than what we know here.
Sadducees, your, your, your problem is, is a ridiculous riddle. You don't understand theology. Beyond that, you don't understand the Scripture. Because the proof of the resurrection is in the Scriptures. It's even in the Scriptures, that portion of the Scripture that you say you believe in. Right? I mean, think with me on this. If someone were to say to you, can you, um, can you demonstrate the resurrection from the dead from the Old Testament? How likely before this morning would it have been for you to choose Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 and Moses at the burning bush as your key text? Not likely, I would assume. Not likely. But that's what Jesus does. He says, okay. You say only Genesis to Deuteronomy is the, is the Scripture. Let me take you to Exodus. I'll show you you don't even know the Scripture you say you believe. He defeats them on their own turf. Defeats them on their own turf. He, he rebukes their foolish unbelief. And he does it in a really amazing way, I think. Very instructive. Very... very um, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, something I want to emulate. He does it with a, with a combination of Old Testament chronology and verb tense. History and grammar. Did I say it? History and grammar. That's how he does it. Regarding the resurrection, verse 31... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, so here's how it goes. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush in 1446 B.C. 1446 B.C. At that time, when God spoke to Moses, Abraham had already been dead 544 years. At that time, Isaac had been dead 439 years. At that time, Jacob had been dead 412 years. But Jesus observes that that God refers to those men in the present tense. He says, I am the God of, not I was the God of. You see that? I am the God of Abraham, though he be dead over 500 years. I am the God of Abraham. Isaac, though he be dead over 400 years. I am the God of Jacob, though he be dead over 400 years. What's the significance of all of that? What the significance is is that these men still live. These men still live. And the fact that, that God is declaring that he is their God means they are still in a covenant relationship with him. These men live in covenant relationship with God, though they be dead. It is this ongoing covenant relationship that transcends the grave that is the proof, it assures the reality of the resurrection. 
That's Jesus' argument. That's his argument. These men live, and they live in covenant relationship with me. That is an incredible piece of exegesis and biblical reasoning. It's amazing. Just amazing. There's a couple other things that stand out to me from this as well. Uh, The time Jesus is citing this text, he is citing a text of Moses that is um, 1,400 years old. It is a 1,400-year-old document at the time Jesus is citing it. And he is building his entire argument on the tense of a verb. The tense of a verb in a document that is, that is 14 centuries old by that time. Right? Present tense versus past tense verb. I am, not I was. The implications of that, I think, are huge. Because what that means is that, that Jesus believed in what theologians call the, the verbal plenary, plenary is a fancy word, it just means full or complete, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture and God's providential care and preservation of that text. Jesus is saying that the entire argument, the proof here of the resurrection, relies on a 1,400-year-old text and the tense of a verb in that text. Beloved, that's why we preach the Scriptures in this way. Verb tenses matter. Plurals and singulars matter. Paul builds his whole argument in Galatians, right? On seed, not seeds. Difference between a plural and a singular. Every single word is important. It's important. So Jesus believed in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture and God's providential preservation of the text. Beyond that, sort of sticks out for me is uh, here in verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Isn't that an interesting statement? Moses wrote it. Moses wrote it. God spoke it to Moses. Moses wrote it down. But here Jesus is saying to these Sadducees that God is speaking to you through this text. The implications of that are, listen, when when you read the Scriptures, the the God, God is speaking to you through the Scriptures. The world is so messed up. People thinking that God's talking directly to them, pouring it into their head somehow. Ridiculous. God speaks to his people through his word. That's how he speaks. That's how he speaks. And it's incumbent upon his people to to give themselves to the word of God and understand what he has said. 
down to things like chronology and, and verb tense. Well, how's the crowd react to this? Verse 33. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. <laughs> I bet they were. I bet you could just hear the murmur going through the crowd. Did you hear what he did? Did you see the way he just closed their mouths? Listen, these are not popular. The Sadducees were not popular. They are ripping the people off, and they knew it. He just shut them off. Over in Luke's gospel, parallel account of the same incident, Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Even the, 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 the Pharisees get drawn into it. It says there some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. Yeah. <laughs> Got him. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Everybody's astounded. They are absolutely astounded. Now, they may be astounded, but they don't repent and believe. They don't repent and believe. Won't be long before they're calling for his death. So how do we apply this? Let's, uh, we got a few minutes here, just a few. Let's talk about applying this. Starts here. Jesus is the prototypical Psalm 1 man. Okay? Psalm 1 opens the Psalter, right? In Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. He is the Psalm 1 man. He was so steeped in the Scriptures that in Luke chapter 2, remember when he is 12 years old? His parents uh, lose him, <laughs> as it were. After three days, it says, verse 46, 46, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Listen, don't read that as, oh, yeah, of course, he's the son of God. He knows everything. And that's not what's being communicated there. They are amazed at his answers because this, this 12-year-old boy, the son of the bar mitzvah, right, the son of the law, has has already given himself to the Scriptures in such a significant way that even the teachers of Israel recognize a Psalm 1 man. A Psalm 1 man. So he's our example. He is our example. He's also an example for us of, of a, a one aspect of what it means to be a godly leader with regard to the Scriptures. What I mean by that is, is when Paul is writing to Timothy and to Titus and, and talking to them about leadership in the church, he says that the men who are brought into leadership of the church need to be men who are steeped in the Word of God. Steeped in the Word of God. 
For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, writing to Timothy, he says, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be a man steeped in the scriptures, Timothy. A little later on, same, same letter, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, speaking of the scriptures themselves, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Including rebuking materialistic Sadducees from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 on the doctrine of the resurrection. All scripture is profitable. Or his words to Titus in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, therefore, the overseer must be one who is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The elder has to be steeped in the word of God. Like Jesus, steeped in the word of God. Well, you say to yourself, um, I'm a woman, so I'm not going to be an elder, so I'm off the hook. Or you say to yourself, I'm a man and I don't aspire to be an elder, so I'm off the hook. Oh, you know me better than that. Listen, the leadership of the church, the elders of the church are not a, not a, not a cut above everybody else. There's not two levels of Christians. They are men who, who need to be mature in their walk with God, and part of the maturity of their walk with God is, is their facility of the Scripture, their, their, the fact that their lives are given to the Word of God. But, but every man, every woman, is to, is to seek after these things. There are no exceptions. Because there aren't two levels. There aren't two levels. Parents, moms. This one zeroes in on moms. Okay? Moms, you have a role to play. You have a role to play. You have a great opportunity with your young children. The great opportunity you have with your young children is to saturate them, to steep them in the Word of God. What an incredible blessing What a profound responsibility that God has given to you to influence the next generation. That you would raise a generation of Psalm 1 people. Paul says in 2 Timothy again, chapter 1, verse 5, He says, Timothy, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Chapter 3, verse 15, from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy's father was a Greek. Father was a Greek. 
The text seems to indicate not a believing man. It is his mother, it is his grandmother that steep this young man in the Word of God. And so moms, what an opportunity you have. Grandmoms, is that a word? Grandmothers, that's a word. What an opportunity you have to come alongside. To raise the next generation. To raise a generation of Psalm 1 children. Psalm 1 children. And we want our kids to stand firm in the face of opposition, don't we? We, want our, we don't want our children to, to, to turn their backs on the faith when they encounter opposition. And they will encounter opposition. They have encountered opposition. To stand firm in the face of opposition is to emulate our Savior. And the way we stand firm is, to, is deeply rooted in the Word of God. That's it. Deeply rooted in the Word of God. That's how we confront unbelief. That's how we stand firm. May God grant us the desire to make whatever sacrifices we need to make to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we read this uh, account of Jesus' verbal combat with the Sadducees and, and we are absolutely awed. He was fearless. He was able to cut through the facade. He was able to recognize the, the foolishness and get to the real issue. And he was bold to speak. His life, his earthly life is a, is a life steeped in the Word of God. Oh, how many hours did he spend reading the Scriptures, praying, meditating, thinking about passages and their implications Comparing the Word of God in one place to the Word of God in another, that he might understand the revelation more fully. Oh Lord, we have ample evidence from the Scripture that Jesus was a serious student. And our Father, he is our Savior. It is his sacrificial substitutionary death that redeems us from our sin. And we could never work our way into the afterlife, the life to come. We could never be pleasing enough in your sight to somehow. For the entrance standard is perfection, and none of us are perfect. Christ has paid the price for us, and, and by faith in Him we are assured of life everlasting. But our Father, as our Savior, He is our role model. And I pray that you would help us in this year, 2015, to recognize that reality in a new way. And then it would motivate us, not out of a sense of duty or a, 
or a sense of obligation somehow, but out of delight to give ourselves to the Scriptures that we might grow in the likeness of Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.